turn together to John chapter 16, and we can read at verse number 7. John chapter 16, at verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And so on. Now we continue to see uh, and to, to reflect on the way in which this key time in the experience of God's people in the world, the way in which it is a means of crisis for the Lord Jesus Christ himself, but also a time of crisis for those who are his disciples. And that is why uh, during these chapters and his time with them in the upper room, he spends time with them in order to instruct them and in order to teach them. And it's interesting when you when we read through these chapters, the way in which there is very little interaction. It is more about the Lord Jesus speaking to them and addressing them. And so we, we could perhaps conclude that he is overloading them with truth and with teaching. But he is doing that because all that he is saying to them is not simply for their help in that moment, but it is especially for their help in the days that are to come when he is not with them. Now, the very centre of that message, we have seen that he is promising them the helper, the paraclete, the helper that will be with them forever on his departure. And we saw at the end of chapter 15 the way in which the helper was particularly with them for the witness of the gospel. And so that the spirit of truth was going to give them words to speak in every time of need, the Spirit himself bearing witness and there to bear witness also with the help of the Holy Spirit so that they should not fear what they were going to say. And when we saw these words, we recognized the way in which Jesus is moving their focus and their attention away from themselves and to begin to think of the ministry of the gospel on his departure from them. And in these verses that we're looking at here, he is building on that. And we want to look at these verses tonight and see the way in which there is the hope, the helper of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit and the success of the gospel. And it is something perhaps that we need to be encouraged about constantly that the gospel is not the success of the gospel is not about what you and I will do or say that it is primarily and ultimately about what the spirit of God does in the course of life here in this world and so in this fourth reference to the helper the Holy Spirit who comes to support the disciples who want to think of the Holy Spirit and the success of the gospel. I want to think, first of all, that we have the interest. 
and we have the interest because of the trouble that they are in. And the trouble is quite simply that he is going and because of that sorrow has filled their hearts. We read in chapter 12 the way in which Jesus himself began to be troubled and understandably so. And there is a sense of that vibration between and the kind of tremors of, of the trouble that he's going through impacting upon them and in their experience and they are at this stage they are so troubled that they are silenced. At the beginning they were asking questions but now he say to them none of you asks me where I am going. Thomas had asked Simon Peter had asked they had begun by asking questions but as the time goes on they're numbed in their circumstances and however much they're taking in of what Jesus is saying they are not responding or they are responding less and less and of course that's quite human that the more we are in trouble and the more trouble and sorrow overcomes us here filled their hearts the more that happens the more our sorrow will silence us and the deeper the sorrow the greater the silence and that's the way in which they are progressing through this time they are descending into a real depth of sorrow and in these depths they are silent no one is asking him about where he is going and what he's going to do they are in trouble but there is a greater trouble than that and that is where he wants to address them and to say to them what is in their own interest he is saying to them I tell you it is to your advantage that I go away for if I do not go away the helper will not come to you they are in trouble because he is going but the greater trouble is if he doesn't go and that brings them and brings ourselves to, to the very heart of what's happening in these chapters that this is all about the progress of the kingdom of God and that the time has come for as if it were the, the, the hinge of the kingdom to turn the kingdom in a new direction and to move it as if it were onto the last stage and the last lap of what God is going to do in the world and they are so troubled with their own sorrow because Jesus is leaving. And if that trouble, if that sorrow is going to be removed by Jesus staying with them, then everything stalls. The purpose of God comes to an end without being fulfilled. And of course that cannot happen. And they need to understand that this is to their advantage. They need to understand that his going is absolutely for their benefit and that all that they need cannot be secured or achieved unless he does go. Everything that's happening contributes to bring everything together for their benefit and for the benefit of the church of Jesus Christ from this time onwards. Remarkably, 
the thing that gives them the greatest sorrow is actually the thing that's to their greatest advantage. And if they understand that, that the helper will only come if he goes, then they are switched on to what God is doing. That They've got their finger on the pulse of the work of the kingdom of God. And that's simply what they did not have because of their sorrow good worship. The closer we come to the departure of Jesus and the suffering of Jesus, the further they go into their sorrow so that they lose sight of the kingdom or else altogether. And they don't seem to take in the words that Jesus spoken to them here that his going is for their interest. And how we need to understand ourselves in the work of God's kingdom that so crucial was this time and the history and the story of the Lord Jesus himself that it is critical to the way in which God's purposes are going to be fulfilled and the way in which the gospel is going to succeed and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of God and of this Christ. The interest. And as we, as we think of that interest, the inauguration, as if it were, of everything that God will do to save ourselves. Let's think locally. I mean, if, if, if Jesus isn't crucified, if he dies an ordinary death and not a death on a cross like God has purposed for him, then we're not here tonight. There is no such thing as the people of God. It just wouldn't happen. We would have a group of people, disciples, around Jesus in Jerusalem. That's as far as it would go. Without the death and the resurrection of Jesus, there is no church of the New Testament church. There are no people of God. There is no gospel going to the very ends of the earth. And what is happening here is not only for the interest of the disciples, but it is also for our interest. That this is critical and crucial if we are going to experience the salvation that God has promised. There is the interest. Secondly, there is the intervention. An intervention which takes place because of a transaction that Jesus keeps referring to. And here he's back to it, if I go, we could read it, but since I go as well, because it's certain, he's addressing them in the way that, that they're doubting everything. But if I go, and, or because I'm going, I will send him to you. In the way, same way as the Father sent him into the world, and he is the sent one, so he is then going to send the Holy Spirit into the world. And we saw last week the way in which there is that procession that the Spirit comes from the Father, that is sent by the Son, and that the Holy Spirit comes into the world in order to inaugurate, to bring about the birth of the Church of the New Testament. And when we go forward in the Bible to, to stand with Peter in Acts chapter 2 on that great day when Peter is explaining what's happening, here is the intervention of God, the Son of God sends the Spirit of God, 
having received the promise from the Father, he sends the Spirit down into the world and suddenly the Spirit of God and the people of God are turning the world upside down. The intervention that creates a shock and a tremor that goes from Pentecost and that reaches us to where we are this evening. The power of the Spirit of God, the intervention of the Holy Spirit of truth, the helper that's going to be alongside them, the helper that's going to be alongside us, the helper that's going to be in their hearts and in our hearts. The intervention. And what is the impact of not just the tremor, but of the, of the earthquake, of, of the coming of the Holy Spirit of God? It brings about a transformation in the people of the world that the people that they are fearing. And look at what Jesus says. When he comes, he will convict the world. The world, yes, that is the place where humankind live. The world that is the habitation of Jesus himself at this time, the world that is alienated from God, that world in all of its darkness, in all of its enmity, that world is going to be convicted by this Holy Spirit. And it is that world which the church confronts and which you and I confront as the people of God when it comes to us serving the gospel. And we saw the way in which Jesus made reference to that in verse 18 of the previous chapter. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, and I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they would also persecute you. There is no place for discipleship but in the world. That's where Jesus had taken his own disciples and they are following him. And when they are going to witness for him, the Spirit of God is going to intervene and he is going to convict the world. And the conviction is, first of all, it's intellectual in the sense that the Spirit of God convicts us with regard to the truth, to the truth about the Lord Jesus, to the truth about our sin. And when we are convicted in that intellectual way, it reaches to, to our consciences where we begin to understand the sinfulness of our sin. And all of that conviction, in the first place, it's about bringing us to understand our guilt to know that we are wrong in the presence of God. And where we to complete our definition and our explanation of conviction at that stage, then there is no salvation. The Spirit of God can come tonight and leave you as guilty as possible with a weight of the guilt of your sin and the sense of the condemnation of the 
of, of the holy God that, that against whom you have sinned and before whom you are accountable. There is that sense of conviction that brings about a real burden of guilt. The guilt that was weighing David down in Psalm 32. The guilt that will wear you and I down also when we're face to face with the fact that we've sinned against a holy God. The conviction that is not yet complete. We can say the conviction stage one. But that is all about bringing the person who is convicted, bringing about a change in that person to correct them, to, to set them apart, to make them right with God and to point them in the way through which that will be achieved and that will be experienced. And so the conviction that comes to make me feel guilty and the conviction that comes to make me feel shame before God is the conviction that comes ultimately to change my heart. To take away the hatred that we see in verse number 18. To take away the spirit of persecution that we see in, in, in the verse number 20 of chapter 15. To take away all of that hatred and to change my heart until I'm the kind of person that loves and that is ready to receive, the kind of person that is born again, the kind of person that, come, that becomes then a place for the Holy Spirit of God to dwell in. The promise that God gave, that Jesus gave to the disciples in chapter 14 with regard to the Spirit of Truth he is with you and shall be in you. And so when this powerful earthquake of the Spirit of God comes to individuals, it comes to them to awaken them to a sense of their need and to give to them an, an understanding of where that need is to be met. And we go to the first appearance an example of that as we said in Acts chapter 2 what happened when the helper came down sent by the son of God what happened they were cut to the heart their guilt was brought home to them the spirit of God left them helpless and they saw the wrong of what they had done what can we do you see that the way in which the Spirit of God is changing our people who hated the Lord Jesus and to crucify him. The Spirit in its coming at that moment is changing their hearts. What can we do, brethren? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The intervention that brings about such a great change that we have new people. You must be born again, said Jesus. And here it is happening because of the way in which the Spirit of God is working. I see the prodigal son. He's in the far country. 
and in the midst of all that he's going through, what happens to him? He comes to himself. He comes to his senses. How do we understand the story? Only because God comes and brings the person alive in the far country, in the place of enmity and hatred, and changes them. I, will, I, I remember my father says, I will arise, I will go to my father. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I'll be one of your servants. But the father was having none of that when he arrived. Bring about, bring out the best robe. Let's make a feast. This my son was lost and is found, was alive, was dead and is alive again. And Paul captures the whole thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 where he says godly grief produces repentance unto salvation with no regret. What a great change in your own life. The Spirit of God has done this very thing. It may not have been or felt like an earthquake, but it felt like a power was working that you had never felt before. And because of that power, there was a sense of, of how wrong you were, where you were, and a sense of your need of the gospel, and a coming to a, a, a readiness, to, to a waiting for, for God's salvation to come into your heart. The success of the gospel. Because of that, we are here tonight. That the spirit that came down in Acts chapter 2 has come to your home, to your heart, to your, to your place of work, to wherever God found you. And wherever he can find you tonight, the spirit of God intervenes. And you'll never be the same again. And unless the Spirit of God does intervene, you will always be what you are forevermore. The intervention. We are thankful to God for the success of the gospel because it all depends upon him. And we thought this morning about the way in which Jesus is going to establish justice in all of the nations. This is how he's going to do it. What is impossible with us it's possible with God because with God all things are possible if he saved you and if he saved me he can save anyone in accordance with his purposes the intervention and thirdly there is the interaction what happens when God meets with you in, by the power of his Holy Spirit. What happens when God meets with a world that hates? While we were still enemies, Christ died for us, says Paul. Well, first of all, the interaction has to do with the great problem of our sin. He will convict this world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. And we can think of sin as 
not reaching the mark that God has set for us. We can think of sin as <clears throat> failing to reach the goal that God has set for us. We can think of sin as rebellion against God. And it's all of these things, but it is primarily rebellion. And when this interaction takes place, it is as if we take something that's covered in layers. And what's covered in layers is our personal sin. And the Spirit of God comes, this helper, and he begins taking away the layers. What I did here, what I did there, what I did against this person, what I did against God, the every way in which I rebelled against the law of God, he takes the layers away. And he wants us to come to, to the core of the problem. And until we get there, we're not going to appreciate the answer to the problem. And so the Spirit of God takes away all of the layers. And then we come to the very heart and heartbeat of a rebellion against God. The sin because they do not believe in me. Some said, the mother of all sins. The one that gives birth to every other sin. It was true in the Old Testament, they rebelled against their covenant God and they loved their idols and they lived the life of those who worshipped the idols. What was the problem? It was their unbelief that they did not believe in God. And here is the great problem that the world has that Jesus wants to put his finger on. And here is the great problem that you and I have. And until the interaction of the Spirit of God takes us to that place, we'll remain in our sin. And of course, when the Spirit of God comes to intervene, we are going to understand this sin and that sin. Uh, and how much in thought and word, and word and indeed we commit sin. And whatever sin you're, you're guilty of tonight, when the Spirit of God comes, that's going to be highlighted. And it's going to be awakened in your conscience. But that will not bring you anywhere until you come to understand that the greatest sin of all is that you refuse to believe in Jesus Christ. And tonight, only you can answer that question. Has this intervention taken place? Has this interaction worked for you so that tonight you understand that my greatest sin against this holy God is that I haven't believed in his Son? What do you think of the Son of God, of the Lord Jesus? What do you think of his passion and of his work? Do you believe in his name? The interaction that comes to put the finger on the mother of all sins. And, of course, every sin deserves the wrath and 
curse of God in this world and in that which is to come. But here is the great condemnation that we do not believe on the Son of God as the Saviour of the world. The interaction and the unbelief. There is also the interaction and who these people thought they really were. And Jesus goes on to speak of concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. How apt is that to speak to religious people especially and to raise the issue of righteousness? You might think tonight that that you're okay, that uh, your life is good. You, you attend church, you, you, you pray to God, you, you read the Bible, and you live your life in an upright way. You might think that that's pleasing to God, that you are righteous. The people in Jesus' day, they were exactly the same. They loved the temple. And don't let anyone do anything to harm the temple. Jesus says to them, destroy this temple and I will build it in three days. And they were horrified at the thought of the temple being destroyed. They loved the temple because it was significant in the history of the people of God. They, they loved the, the Sabbath day. We see that in chapter 5. They loved the Sabbath day. They were persecuting Jesus because of what he was doing on the Sabbath day. They loved to observe the Sabbath. You see the picture? Righteous people in their own eyes. They were those who loved the law of Moses. And we see that in chapter 7. They had the law of Moses. They didn't understand that, that they weren't keeping it, but they had the law. Here they are. They love everything that represents the presence of God. They love the Lord, the Sabbath day. And they love the law of God. But in the midst of, of all of that, there is something missing. And that's the second most important thing that the Spirit of God does when it interacts with a person who is lost in their sin to address that whole area of who we think we are and what we think we are. And when the Spirit of God does that, we discover not only that we're not as good as we thought we were, but that we're not good at all. And Paul says that in Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. So let none of us think tonight that we're excluded from, from the way in which the Spirit of God interacts because there is something good in us. In accordance with the teaching of the Bible, no one is righteous. And God, of course, demands that he is the righteous God. And Jesus in John 17 will go on to pray, O righteous Father, he himself is righteous. He demands and expects that of his people, of his children. But concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And there are two issues. And the first thing is, that they, the righteous ones, put Jesus on the cross, that they rejected him, and they nailed him to the cross, they made sure that he went to die. 
But because Jesus goes to the Father, it reminds them that Jesus was right and they were wrong. In other words, Jesus is vindicated by God. He is raised up and he sends the Spirit of God. He is the righteous one and they are the unrighteous ones. And they have to understand that. And the interaction will will drive that point home. That where I thought I was right with God, where I thought I was good in the presence of God, I will realize that none of that is true. It's the opposite of, of that. I am unrighteous, and I'm unrighteous now proved to be so because God has said, Jesus is the righteous one. And also because Jesus has established our righteousness. And Paul, in different ways and at different times, goes on to speak about the righteousness of God being revealed from faith to faith. The righteousness of God being revealed apart from the law when God sent his son in Romans Romans chapter 3 to be a propitiation for our sins and where perhaps supremely we see the way in which Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 speaks of the way in which he, the Lord Jesus, who did not know sin, he made him, the Lord Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God says to his people in the prophecy of Isaiah, that chapter 64, that their righteousness was as filthy rags before God. And here we're back once more to the image of peeling things away. And when the interaction of the Spirit takes place in this way in your life and in mine, we will see that all that we have are rags and that we have to have these removed. In Zechariah 3, God says that with regard to to the high priest, with with regard to the way in which the the clothes are filthy and there is the accusation of Satan. And take the, the filthy rags off him. And that's what's happening in this moment. God takes away all the filthiness of what I think is righteous because it is rags before God and and God wants to cover us as the father covered the prodigal son wants to cover us with the best robe and what is the best robe? it is the robe that Jesus has woven on his death on the cross and in his resurrection that robe of righteousness with which God clothes his people and through which and in which he sees them special and blessed. And in that moment, the way in which God vindicated his son as the righteous one becomes now the way in which he vindicates sinners. They are righteous in my sight. What a wonderful transformation of the interaction and the righteousness to know tonight in the presence of God that he sees me no longer as someone who has the unrighteousness that deserves his condemnation, the penalty of death, but instead 
He sees me with the clothes that have been purchased, with the penalty being laid upon the Lord Jesus as my Saviour. And through that transaction, that these beautiful garments which leave me acceptable before God are tonight mine. The interaction and the righteousness. What do you feel about yourself tonight? Do you feel good about yourself? Well, there is something wrong. But if you feel good about the Lord Jesus, then everything is right and everything is righteous. And God accepts you as such. The interaction and the righteousness. And finally, the interaction and judgment. Judgment is so important. The God who sits as judge will judge righteously. In John 5, you read that, that the Father has given all judgment to the Son. That judgment will be true. But here in this interaction concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The ruler of this world. We read about him in, in chapter 12. He is the prince of this world. In Paul's words, he is the God of this world. And why is it important that he is judged? Why is he at the center of this interaction? Because, as we see in chapter 8, because he is a murderer and he is the father of lies. There's no truth in him. And Paul tells us that he has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And the result of that is that unbelievers believe what is not the truth. And unbelievers don't realize that they believe that because of Satan, because of the work of Satan in this world and in their lives. He speaks lies. He speaks lies in order to bring about their destruction. And he does so generation after generation. They have to believe the truth as it is in Jesus to be saved. But as long as the God of this world, as long as he is blinding them and telling them lies, then they will never embrace the truth. And here Jesus is addressing that. That in this picture that he gives to us of how we become the, the children of God, the prince, the ruler of this world, is judged. In verse 12, in chapter 12 at verse 31, now is the prince of this world cast out. In Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus destroyed him at the power of death, that is the devil. In the cross of Jesus, he disarmed principalities and powers, he disarmed Satan himself, and he took the power from him and its ability to blind the nations of the world. And once that, that ability to blind is taken away, then we're going to see the truth as it is, as it comes to us from the spirit of truth. And how our world needs to know that kind of freedom. We see it in Revelation chapter 20 as we close. The way in which Satan is bound and he's cast, chained and, and cast down into the pit. Why is that? Why, why did... 
why does that happen at the resurrection of Jesus? The explanation is exactly what we have here. So that he would not deceive the nations any longer. And that opens up the gospel to success. Because the the devil that blinded the nations of the world from the knowledge and the understanding of God, he's been captured, he's been disarmed, he's been chained. And now the Spirit of God comes to speak the truth and we come to believe the truth and we recognize the lie to be what it is. And we look at our world around us and believing lies about everything and not understanding that they are lies and competing and promoting the very thing which is a lie. And they will continue to do so until God intervenes by his Spirit. This interaction takes place and then they become the children, the people of God. We thank God for the success of the gospel because of the power of the Spirit of God to change people like you and me. And we give thanks that that work continues and will continue until the end of time. May God bless his words. Let us pray. Most gracious God, we do bow before you and we are thankful to you for the way in which you bring about change, for the way in which you convict and convert and bring people to see the light and to know the truth and to believe in your Son as Saviour. Bless all of our hearts together this evening. May we have that faith. May we have that understanding. May we have that peace. And may we walk with you. And may we serve you and live for you day by day in our lives. Hear us, we pray, and bless your word. For Jesus' sake. Amen.